But as I sat down in January and looked across, you know, um, what was happening in the markets with energy and commodity prices skyrocketing, um, inflation looking like it was kind of out of control, um, political dysfunction, things like that. Um, you know, it got me thinking, which of these are real risks to the energy transition and which could we kind of write off as red herring? Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Albert Chung, head of analysis for Bloomberg NEF, about his recent commentary, Hold Your Nerve, Energy Transition Risks and Red Herrings in 2022. Welcome to the interview, Albert. Thanks for having me, Markham. Now, you wrote a very interesting commentary, and so let's start at the beginning. Uh, you said, yes, clean energy has had a good pandemic, but at the same time, there are some storm clouds on the horizon. That's right, yeah. Um, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, it's clear that clean energy has been on a roll the last couple of years. We have record levels of electric vehicle sales over the last two years in a row, and the same goes for renewable energy deployments. Um, but as I sat down in January and looked across you know, um, what was happening in the markets with energy and commodity prices skyrocketing, um, inflation looking like it was kind of out of control, um, political dysfunction, things like that, um, you know, it got me thinking, which of these are real risks to the energy transition and which could we kind of write off as red herring? So that, that's kind of what, what I wanted to cover. Well, let's talk about the one that you call the most serious risk, which is political dysfunction. And you focused in on the United States here. Yeah, that's right. Um, and this is kind of um, the, the end of the article that I wrote. Um, you know, the, the end of 2021, we, you know, we ended the year with COP26 with world leaders committing um, 90 percent of the world's emissions towards net zero, um, you know, some very ambitious long term goals um, and some you know, quite ambitious midterm goals for 2030 towards achieving that. Um, what we know is the policies are not yet in place around the world to deliver on those commitments. Um, so there's two kind of things that need to happen this year in that global climate um, talks world. Um, one is that countries need to put in place policies to meet the, the goals that they've set. Um, and the other is that hopefully they, they raise those ambitions um, and countries come back in November of this year um, for COP27 with, with even higher ambition, which was you know, one of the outcomes of COP26 was to buy us another year. Now, you know, I talk about the US in the piece because there was a you know, very uh, you know, public um, moment in, uh, in December when Senator Joe Manchin said that he was no longer supportive of the Build Back Better bill in, in its state at that time. And um, this felt like a real blow to the energy transition in you know, what is still the world's biggest economy and the world's second biggest emitter and, and a country that many others look up to. Um, and I think that um, to me, this is not just about the Build Back Better bill itself, even though there are some important provisions in there, um, uh, chiefly tax credits for different um, technologies that will uh, accelerate deployment of, of those technologies. But also because it's symptomatic of, um, of the fact that um, a robust political consensus around climate action in the US is still being built. It's not there yet in a, in a way that it is there in many other countries. And so that's, you know, to me is uh, when you zoom out and take a, a look at the, the global climate ambition, that to me is one of the big risks. Um, is that the US um, maybe is not able to deliver on the commitments that it has made. Um, and that, that then has a knock-on effect on other countries' commitments and what they come back with in, at COP27 at the end of this year. 
You know, when I look at the United States, uh, I think of the parallels to Canada, where I live, uh, because Canada is a decentralized federation, and a lot of the responsibility for energy and climate rests with provinces. The same thing is true in the United States, and the the, the states and uh, some of the big, you know, and cities uh, have a, a large responsibility for, for this area. They're very active, I think, as a rule, you, you could say, and not all the states, of course, but uh, but many. And uh, I wonder, you know, that that's a convenient way to frame it, uh, and 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 use that perhaps as an explanation or maybe even an excuse for why progress is in North America isn't as quick as it has been in Europe. But I mean, in Europe, uh, you've got all the states of the European Union that seem to have managed to to uh, come together and and lead the world in in uh, climate and energy policy. So does it come down to the quality of leadership? Uh, does that make a difference? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I think with both regions, if you take sort of North America as a region that has states and provinces and 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 and, and the EU or Europe, I should say, as a whole, um, they're almost the converse because both of them have this richness in terms of different policies, either at the, the state or province or country level, and different countries and states and provinces taking different levels of ambition and action. That you know debate within those countries. But the narrative as a whole is the EU and Europe is, is driving things forward because there is this sort of block level agreement on, on, the, on, on the need to progress. Um, whereas kind of actually the opposite is true in, in North America or particularly in the US where kind of at the block level, <laughs> if you can call it that, um, at the federal level, um, there is still this kind of polit political, uh, let's, let's call it sort of lack of political consensus. Um, I think to put it down to leadership is one way to think about it. Um, and certainly when we look back to 2015 or 2014 before the Paris Agreement, um, you know, it was leadership from President Obama and, and President Xi and, you know, leaders of, of European countries at the time that made Paris possible. That leadership was critical. Um, how, however, I also think that what, what we're seeing in, um, in the U.S. is sh sh shows that it, it's not that straightforward for a leader to come and solve it. Um, because what we need really is kind of decadal commitment um, where the next leader can't come along with a different idea and, and change that narrative. So, you know, what gives me confidence is um, there's a pretty healthy majority now of North Americans who believe that we need to address climate change. And that's going to filter through to the politics and through to, through to, um, through, through, through to the system, I think, over time. Let me identify then maybe another uh, risk here within the political realm. And that is uh, in Canada, uh, you've got a liberal government that uh, since 2015 has brought in a comprehensive suite of energy and climate policies that experts agree could get us get the country to a net zero by, by 2050. The Conservative Party has had a much more difficult time wrapping its head around energy and climate policy. It is allied very tightly with the oil and gas industry centered in, in Alberta. And the situation is a little different in the U.S. Uh, here, there you have, uh, you know, uh, you had President Trump uh, from 20, uh, 2016 to 20, 2020. And there's a very good chance, if we read the tea leaves today, that he might be reelected in 2024. And he is opposed to many of, many of these policies. And many in the, G, in, the, in the Republican Party are opposed to these, to these parties. So it seems... Where in Canada, 
the liberal party that that um, favors and has brought in these policies likely will be around for a while, according to the polls and you know looking at the politics. Not the case necessarily in the U.S. There's a very good chance that things could be radically different in, in 2024. I just wanted to make that point that the U.S. is Canada seems to be making progress. The U.S. is still, I think, fairly uncertain. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a um, a good assessment, and I I think I would also add that co countries that have um, significant you know oil and gas uh, production industries and and resources um, ha have to tread more carefully when it comes to the politics of the energy transition, not necessarily the economics, because I think a lot of the the technologies are here and ready. You know, renewables are cost competitive; electric vehicles will soon be. Um, but in managing the impacts of that and um, managing the question of well to what extent do we keep producing even if even if demand you know is, is very uncertain now and how do we uh, pr preserve or transition those jobs in those communities um, that that is to be very frank a, a, a more fraught conversation than in countries that happen not to be major producers and exporters of, um, of oil and gas well let's talk about the the second risk which is high input and freight prices Sure, and, and this is kind of where my, my piece uh, actually started was, um, you know, for years and years now, you know, as long as I've been in the industry, which is about 13 years, I think, um, it's been pretty reliable that costs would fall with, you know, wind turbine prices and, and solar module prices, and, you know, all, all of these equipment costs, battery prices would fall year on year. Um, and as BNF, we got very good at predicting that. Um, and yet in the back of our minds, we, we always had this sort of question, what if one day that wasn't true anymore? You know, what, what if they stopped falling? And although in the long term, we still think they will continue to fall, um, the second half of last year um, was that moment when they stopped falling for a moment um, and in fact, in fact started rising. Um, so just as an example, we saw solar module prices rise to um, about 27 US cents per watt. Um, at the end of last year, and that was up from just 19 cents at the lowest point in 2020. So that, that's a significant uplift. Um, we also saw wind turbine prices rise by around about 9% um, in the second half of last year, according to our research. Um, and so all in, um, when you take out, when you take the levelized cost of electricity, which is what's the actual price you gotta pay a wind farm um, for them to be worth building that wind farm from the ground up. Um, so what's the electricity price from that wind farm, essentially? Um, that number went up 4% um, last year, which is basically not really done before. Um, and for solar, it went up 7% um, last year, or, uh, bet between the first half and the second half of last year. Um, and so it, it, in my piece, I, I sort of consider, you know, what, is this a major risk or is, is it a red herring? And, and maybe to, to cut to the chase, there's a, a couple of reasons why, um, in the long term, it's probably a red herring. Um, one is because you know we see the silver linings of um, uh, you know supply coming back online. So so solar is a good example where the main bottleneck is actually supply of polysilicon, and we see um, supply of polysilicon growing by thirty nine percent into this year, which would relieve at least one of the big challenges in, in the solar industry. Um, and similarly for other commodities, over time markets do adjust. Um, and then this, the second, you know, reason to think this is in long term is a red herring, is because um, you kind of have to just look at the other guy, um, and the other guy in this case is things like gas and, and coal. Um, 
And as we all know now, globally, gas prices are now a lot higher than they were before. Um, our benchmark for gas-fired power generation, levelized cost of electricity from gas globally is up 12% um, versus the 4% and 7% for wind and solar. Um, so I think what we're going through at the moment is a, is a kind of difficult moment where project developers and equipment manufacturers have to figure out how to renegotiate contracts and figure out how to navigate this, this moment where, where things are dislocated. But um, I think when we zoom out, we think this stuff settles over time. This doesn't change the fact that renewables are cost competitive and, and continue to be cost competitive over time. Now, Albert, um, a couple of weeks ago, I sat on a panel with a number of uh, American executives uh, who run independent system operator, uh, operators in the US. And uh, Dwayne Hiley, who I think is with Tri-State, uh, said that in their area, uh, wind is now costs uh, one cent per kilowatt hour to generate and solar is under two cents per kilowatt hour. And I guess the point I want to make or the question I want to ask is, given the prices now are so low, even if they go up 4%, you know, what difference does it make? I mean, we're, we're, the, the renewables seem to be on an inevitable march to the mar marginal cost approaching zero. And so small increases in the short term, do they have really have much of a, an impact or is this just a, a small, you know, road bump? Well, I think that's a great way to think about it is, you know, does it, you know, does 4% matter when you're, when you're still the most competitive resource and when you step back, it probably doesn't matter in the long run, we're going to deploy more of these resources, they're going to play a bigger role in the energy transition. I think in the short term, if you're a project developer that's signed a PPA um, at a certain price, and now you're going to buy solar modules that are more expensive than you thought they were, that is actually pretty annoying. Um, and is going to hit the margins of your project and things like that. And you may need to go back and renegotiate a bunch of things. So there is going to be friction. And we've seen some projects being delayed from one year into the next to wait for low, lower equipment prices and things like that. So I don't, want to, I don't want to sort of dismiss those pains. You know, there's margins being impacted in different parts of the value chain. Um, but yes, I think you're, you're right. In the, in the long run, in the big picture of things, um, hopefully we look back on this as a blip. Well, let's talk about the third risk, and that's rising financing costs. Um, yeah, so again, a really interesting one, um, something we've thought about for a number of years, um, because over the last decade, we've had um, low interest rates, um, expansionary monetary policy, money has been cheap for, for quite a long time, actually. And that did help renewables a lot. And the, the reason for that is because when you think of the, the overall cost of a renewable plant versus the overall cost of a gas or a coal plant, um, much more of the renewable plants costs come up front, the capital expenditures, you've got to raise debt to pay for that. Versus for gas or coal, a lot of it's operational expenditures, you're buying fuel, you, you know, you don't need finance or you don't need the same kind of long-term finance to, to do that. So, so when financing costs rise, when interest rates rise, it tends to hurt renewables more than it hurts fossil, uh, fossil plants. Um, and th there is a, a sensitivity here, which is that, um, Roughly speaking, it differs in different cases that um, if you increase financing costs by 1%, um, then your uh, overall levelized cost of electricity for solar goes up around 2.5%, and for wind, it goes up around, around 5%. Um, so it's quite sensitive. Um, and so I, I think when we, when we look at that, we do see that driving the cost of renewables higher 
in a similar way as rising input costs, it's, just, it's the same dynamic. It's just think of it as another input cost to, to the cost of your project. Um, but again, there are mitigating factors when you think about how, how the supply of finance is, um, that there are actually more investors, there's more money trying to find its way into low carbon assets now than there ever has been. And you can call it ESG, you can call it sustainability, you can call it climate risk or transition risk or you know sustainable debt sustainable finance all of these markets are growing and that is leading to more more money being available for these kinds of investments at least in you know in, in, the, in the developed world where the where the markets are are mature and 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 operate well and there's you know some somewhat lower risk so i think again on balance yes this is a challenge um but we don't see you know the flow of capital or the amount of, of money available for, for clean energy to you know that's definitely not going to suddenly dry up i think we we're in a we're in a world where there's lots of money available well let's talk about the fourth risk and that is the energy crunch and greenflation uh, concerns yep so um this is probably um the topic that's getting the most controversy at the moment um when we're out there and talk, talking to folks about this one um we are in an energy crunch and you know energy prices are very high in the wholesale markets um gas power oil um everything's kind of and particularly where i am here in in the, in the uk and europe gas prices are very very high now um some of that hasn't yet filtered through to consumers just because of the way that powering you know retail energy markets work um but it is about to it's, it's going to start filtering through and consumers are going to start feeling you know, 50, 60, 80% increases in their bills, which are really painful and, and will cause economic pain. You know, there, there'll be people pushed into energy poverty by this. And there will be people, um, some well-meaning, um, who say this is because of the energy transition. This is because of green policies that that's, this is happening. And um, I think that that is um, something that's worth really being clear about. Um, when we think about the energy transition from now out to 2050, there's a lot of investment that will be required to build out renewables and grids and hydrogen and carbon capture. And those investments, you know, the cost of those investments um, will need to fall somewhere. Like, you know, they'll have to be paid somehow, even though many of them will make a return. You know, there'll be positive, there'll be positive in, uh, ROI investments, otherwise they won't happen. But the investment cost has to fall somewhere. Um, and we need to think about where, where that's going to be. But when we really look at what's happening today in the real world, that's not the reason why we're in an energy crunch. That's not the reason why consumers are going to see their bills rise this year. Um, and we, we need to be really clear about that because there's confusion between what could hypothetically happen in future if we get the policies wrong and the costs fall in the wrong places um, and we do it inefficiently um, versus really what's happening now. And um, what I say in the piece really, and you know, we can dig a bit more into this, is that um, the risk here is that we fall for that notional narrative, that straw man argument that because it could happen, that's why, that's what's already happening. Um, I, I don't know if that's clear, but uh, that, that's kind of the gist of what, what, I've, what I'm trying to say. Well, and, and it, we mentioned uh, earlier, you know, that the biggest risk here was uh, political. And of course, narrative plays a huge role in politics. And there are 
you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the folks who make this argument might be of goodwill, but some of them not so much, or maybe not bad will, but self-interest is, is drives a lot of it. And I'm thinking specifically in the North American context about the oil and gas industry. You know, they, uh, I, I see their, uh, the representatives and their proxies out on social media and in the media talking about how, you know, greenflation is, is a big problem and there, we should be, you know, sort of pulling back and, and relying more on oil and gas. And is that just part of the ebb and flow of, of politics or is, uh, you know, some kind of an organized response uh, needed by governments and, and other uh, organizations interested in the energy transition? I think we just have to be very, very um, watchful about um, misinformation, um, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it's well-meaning or otherwise. Um, I, I don't want to be the arbiter of that. I don't want to, you know, I don't position myself or BNF as the judge of who's, who's, who's got which intentions. However, what's true is there's a discussion out there now that is about greenflation. And while we need to design the policies to make sure this doesn't become an issue in the future, um, we also need to be very clear and very adamant that uh, that is not the cause of the challenges happening in the energy market today. Um, and certainly, um, I think as you're alluding to, there are some parties that are profiting quite nicely today from the crunch in the energy market. Um, and those are the same you know, gr groups that may in future profit from a slower energy transition. So we, I think we just need to be mindful of that um, and, and be very clear about the facts and figures. Well, Albert, thank you very much for doing this. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, yeah, my pleasure.